0: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome
2: to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy,
3: And I'm Deblina and Chalk reporting.
2: And we left off last time talking about the Chevalier Dion, who is a spy, a diplomat, a soldier, and perhaps most famously, a man who lived as a woman for the last three decades of his life. And Dion has been in the news quite a bit since last summer when London's National Portrait Gallery acquired a portrait long believed to be that of a middle-aged woman. Closer inspection, though, revealed that the sitter was the famous, decorated, and highly acclaimed chevalier wearing his trademark black dress of later years and uh, even the, the prestigious medal of uh, St. Louis that he earned. It's the first portrait in the gallery's extensive collection, or the first oil portrait, rather, in the gallery's collection to show a man dressed in women's clothing. So pretty headline-making stuff.
3: But we ended the last podcast before the Chevalier's transition. He was still a diplomat in the service of Louis XV of France, and one who'd served in Russia, a soldier who'd fought valiantly in the Seven Years' War. So this is the portrait we've had of him so far. In 1762 and 63, D'Eon had reached the pinnacle of his career. He'd helped negotiate the war's end. He'd been decorated with the Order of St. Louis, making him a Chevalier, and he'd been sent as minister to Great Britain. He'd also gotten another big promotion, but one few people knew about. For decades Louis the 15th had maintained a secret secondary diplomacy called le secret du roi or the king's secret. It was a chaotic system since Louis's own foreign minister didn't know of its existence and because the secret often pursued foreign policy objectives directly at odds with the official ones, which makes the story a little confusing at times.
2: Well, imagine
3: how it must have felt if you
2: if you worked in uh foreign policy for Louis at the time. But so after the disastrous Seven Years War, though, where France lost a lot of influence and a lot of land to Great Britain, its official foreign policy was, of course, one of peace. The secret, though, had a different motive, and that was one of revenge. And so as a longtime agent of the King's secret, the newly minted Chevalier Dion had a really important role in this covert operation. He was supposed to lead agents that were scouting out the British coastline, looking for places to land and strategizing about some sort of armed invasion of Great Britain. So really serious secret agent kind of stuff, you know, playing the minister, being a negotiator for peace on the one hand and publicly, but also planning an invasion at the same time.
3: Unfortunately for Dayon though, his rise coincided exactly with Madame de Pompadour's fall. The longtime mistress of Louis the Fifteenth, who we've talked about before, was falling out of favor and had broken into the king's papers, uncovering evidence of the secret. And her people desperately wanted to uncover what was behind it, and their first target was Great Britain and Dion. What was the Chevalier really doing there? So before we get into
2: that, though, we have to discuss... Kind of the backstory of the Chevalier's honors because, well, he was given the status of Minister to Great Britain, which was a great promotion for him, essentially. It wasn't really a promotion that was for keeps, it was just until the new ambassador, a man named the Comte de Guerci, got there. And de Guerci was one of Pompadour's contention one of her guys and so he was of course inherently pretty nosy about what was going on with the king's secret and dillon didn't have a very uh, great personal opinion of the the new minister either he thought that he'd been cowardly in battle nevertheless though Dayan was faced with losing his job to this guy, having to step aside and make way for him. And they really started bickering before de Guerci even arrived. When the new minister got to London, things just got worse too. Dayan refused to hand over his diplomatic papers. He ignored all the orders to return to France. He really dug in his heels.
3: His public stance, though, was still one of loyalty to the king, but he still threatened to reveal something big, essentially trying to blackmail Louis into supporting him in his dispute with de Guirche. And so in March 1764, deon did something really extraordinary. He actually published his diplomatic correspondence, not going so far as to reveal the king's secret and his covert mission in Great Britain, something that could have caused the countries to go back to war, but it still caused a huge stir. Londoners love seeing this French loose cannon, though. (laughs) And according to Jonathan Conlon in History Today, folks at Versailles started lending their copies out like libraries by the hour.
2: Yeah, so it was the read of the day. And, of course, you know, he didn't want to reveal the whole story. He didn't want to disclose the king's secret because it was an insurance policy for him. It was a way to protect his life and to hopefully secure a better deal for himself with Louis since he knew that was the last thing Louis wanted people to know about. But uh, just to give a description of the kind of reaction people had to this book, Conlin includes Horace Walpole's 1764 take on the publication. And and um, here's what he wrote. He said, we are full of a wonderful book just published here by the Chevalier Dion. And he spells it like Dion Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> You are to understand that beside a thousand curious circumstances, Dion's book is full of wit and parts. And what makes it more provoking, our ministers know not what to do, nor how to procure any satisfaction to Guershi. So, yeah, understandably, de Guerchi was not happy about this turn of events. He thought he was getting the sweet job in London. Maybe he'd sort of figure out what the deal was with the secret while he was there. Instead, he is in the middle of this embarrassing public dispute with Dion.
3: But Louis couldn't really help him out. He wasn't exactly in any position to support him either. He didn't want to do anything that would make Dion angry enough to spill the beans on his secret, specifically the proposed invasion of Great Britain. So, again, true to his decades of secrecy and double bluffs, Louis at this point pursues two radically different policies. At one point, he ordered the police officers to Great Britain to seize Dion, but also sent secret word to the Chevalier to escape beforehand and secure <laughs> his papers. So he helped him out at the same time. But he'd attempted to buy out Dion as well, offering him money for the documents detailing the secret and why the Chevalier was really in London. George III also wasn't really in a position to simply extradite Dale back to Louis either. The British people really liked him. They liked... Dayan, he was media savvy, and he'd become a bit of a society spectacle already. And so they supported him over the angry de Guershi, who Dayon accused of trying to murder him. He, he
2: really did know what he was doing with the media, too. He he got the people on his side. Um But yeah, George III was already facing heat for going too easy on France after the Seven Years' War. He really didn't want to look, he didn't want to extradite this popular man, back to France and look like he was just in cahoots with with Louis XV. That wouldn't have been um, a popular position to take. So nobody could really do anything. Dion is just there sitting on the secret. He knows he's safe enough with it. The two kings can't do anything about it. And that game just continued for years and years until Louis the XV's death in May of 1774. At that point, his successor, Louis the Sixteenth was looking for ways to tie this up. I mean, clearly, it's a huge liability. It's a huge embarrassment. He's going to try to figure out a way to bring this story to an end and get the Chevalier back in France where they want him.
3: So to negotiate Dayan's return, Louis's foreign minister engaged a playwright, Pierre Caron de Beaumarchais, who wrote The Barber of Seville and The Marriage of Figaro, two plays that were eventually adapted into the famous operas. Beaumarchais got the job done, and on November 4th, 1775, Dayan signed papers called The Transaction, which allowed him to return to France, but only as a woman.
2: Oh, boy. First of all, I just have to say, the transaction, such an appropriate name to conclude the secret. <laughs> <It is. laughs> anyway, though, yes. In order to secure the benefits of the transaction, like a pension,
3: they all had to... Be a woman, highly so, unconventional,
2: <laughs> very unconventional. Just in we case. should
3: say that, just in case people think this was a normal. Oh thing yeah, that, 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 that went down
2: tactic
3: of of the Louis era. No,
2: it was not a traditional sort of arrangement you would come to, even though it might have served the purpose of marginalizing Deon. You know, as as a female in an age when uh, there wouldn't have been many opportunities for for a noble woman. There were way more traditional ways of doing this, like banishing a nobleman to his estate. You didn't normally say start wearing ladies clothing and that'll be your punishment. Even stranger though, the transaction doesn't say, oh, just start wearing women's clothing like for the first time, like you never did it before. It required that Deon quote, readopt women's clothing, suggesting that he had been a woman all along or that he had been a woman, had at one point in his distant past disguised himself as a man
1: and was now required to go back to being a woman, if you can follow all that. <laughs>
0: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. And another surprising thing about this is, I
3: guess, that people really weren't too surprised by it. It wasn't that hard for people to believe that he might have been a woman all exactly along. according to thomas stewart's article for the national portrait gallery it was accepted that women sometimes disguised themselves and lived as men in order to serve in a military capacity or even simply to follow their sweethearts into battle but everyone knew that Dion was a man right
2: that's what you might think i mean certainly it seemed
3: as though everybody involved in
2: the transaction knew he was a man, but that's not really the case for the general public. And this is where the story and the motivations involved get pretty murky. But it's possible that the whole readopt women's clothing thing was just a way to marginalize and shame Dion. And if that were the case, it would work pretty well for both the French government, which of course could explain away Dion's radical conduct as that of a hysterical woman, you know, not as a rogue spy. Um, and it would work all right for Dayon too, who at least would get to skip out on something worse like imprisonment in the Bastille. And plus, if he had been a woman all along, his career would, would be over. So another plus for the, for the French government side of things.
3: But it was not necessarily against his own wishes. Right. It could have been Dayan's own idea, something that appealed to him. We talked a little bit in the last episode about how, depending on what source you read, Dayan either showed no early interest in dressing in women's clothing or he'd been doing it for years. According to Art Daily, he may have even been buying corsets in London for years. What is certain, though, is that since about 1770, there had been rumors about his gender, ones that he actually encouraged after abandoning his initial policy of challenging any doubters to a duel. Leading up to the transaction, people even took bets on whether Dayon was a man or a woman. Pretty crazy stuff, but from the
2: transaction onward, Dayan certainly embraced life fully as a woman. He took on the name Charlotte added ease to that string of middle names. I guess I'll go through that one more time. His his new name, Charlotte jean Louise Auguste-André-Timothée-Déon de Beaumont. Pretty easy changes for most of them.
3: Still a mouthful. <laughs>
2: Still a mouthful. Um, but he or she at this point left London for Paris in August 1777. I mean, of that, of course, was what this transaction was for in the first place, amnesty. And by November, Dayle was presented at court to Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And this really might be my favorite part of the story, just because it's so unexpected. I mean, there's nothing... You never read anything like this. It's just... It stands alone. <laughs> Dale underwent a four-hour toilette that was done by Rose Bertin herself, who's the famous designer. She, she did Marie Antoinette's clothes. But... <laughs> four hours still was not enough to impress the snobby ladies of Versailles. Uh, The Vicontas de Farr wrote, quote, she had nothing of our sex but the petticoats and the curls, which suited her horribly. Pretty mean thing to say, but still, I'm totally embracing the fact that Deon is a woman. So after just a couple weeks at Versailles, though, it must have seemed that dressing in women's clothes was not going to be enough of a marginalization for this rogue spy. And Dale was sent back to, uh, to the Burgundy estate to live in exile until 1785, when finally she got what she had been agitating for for quite some time, which was to get back to London, where she was still a really popular figure.
3: Once back in London, Deon took to performing fencing displays in a dress and cap, and the British continued to really like her. Mary Wollstonecraft held her up as an example of femininity for British women to emulate. And in 1792, she offered the French National Assembly, uh, she offered basically to lead an Amazon army, and they in adored defense this. In of France. Right.
2: The British just loved the they idea. ate it up. Yeah of an Amazon army.
3: The revolution spelled hard times for Danielle, though. She lost her pension from the transaction. She had to sell off books, jewelry, and even the order of St. Louis when she was imprisoned for debt. She finally died at age 82 in 1810, poor and living with a widow named Mary Cole, who supposedly had the surprise of her life when she helped lay out the body of her old friend and found that she was actually a man. Death was really the only thing that settled that old question. Chevalier was physically a male.
0: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at HowLifeUnfolds.com slash Papertarian.
2: But there are still more mysteries surrounding this story. And, and one of the main mysteries surrounds Dale's decision to continue living as a woman In that last 15 some odd years after the revolution, after Louis XVI's execution, clearly she wasn't in France anymore. She was not getting that pension from the transaction, which was, after all, an agreement made with a now defunct government. So it seemed as though Charlotte could have just returned to being Charles the Chevalier. And it probably, uh, the the answer to this probably depends on Dale's original motivation to accept the terms of the transaction in the first place. So Dayon may have wanted to dress and live as a woman and was in this utterly unique position for an 18th century man to do that openly. Uh, the National Portrait Gallery, for instance, there assessment is pretty compelling. They wrote, quote, no transvestite or transsexual until the late 20th century has enjoyed such public recognition and acceptance. So if this was Dion's motivation, then why stop just because Louis is gone? If if this was the life that she had wanted to lead?
3: Or another possibility here, if the gender reassignment had not been a willing choice at the time, maybe it seemed a smart one to maintain by the 1790s, especially without that pension. Dion after all, had already reworked her life story as though she'd been a woman all along. She profited from being unique, fencing in skirts and so on. She even sold memoirs in 1805, though she never delivered. Maybe it would have been too hard to go once back once
2: you've rewritten your life story and right maybe it just and of, made a living that way yeah it might have just been it might have not seemed feasible to make a living in another way um, because of course if she did return to being a man she'd sort of be a man in disgrace I mean especially with with France still. But the painting acquired by the National Portrait Gallery, which we described a little bit at the beginning of the the first episode, it actually gives a pretty good idea of the level of the Chevalier's fame in her early days back in London. It's a 1792 copy by Thomas Stewart of one done in 1791 by Jean-Laurent that had even been shown at the Royal Academy. Um, in the painting, it's really easy to find a picture of it online, but Jane is wearing her signature black dress. She's wearing a large hat with a revolutionary uh, bow, you know, tricolor bow on it. Her Order of Saint-Louis medal and, uh, the copy would have been made in England around the same time that the Chevalier was offering to lead a troop of Amazons. So really at that height of her fame. And according to Art Daily, it somehow got lost around 1926 and then Somehow along the way was mislabeled and misattributed until 2011 when the London art dealer Philip Mould found it at a New York sale. And it was listed, as we as we mentioned in the last episode, misidentified as a woman's portrait done by Gilbert Stewart, who, of course, is a very famous artist. He's known for his unfinished painting of George Washington, the skater, pretty much the portrait that comes to mind if you think of anybody like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, all done by Gilbert Stewart. So it was just believed to be this middle-aged lady Gilbert Stewart had painted, and I guess that's what everybody thought for for some time, at least.
3: But Mould knew that something was off here. According to The Guardian, he said here, quote, even in its dirty state, it was quite clear that this woman had stubble.
2: <laughs> and it really, I mean, it is quite clear that the picture is of a man. I mean, I maybe it's just because I know now. What did you think, yes. Lena?
3: I think it's also clear, not just because of the stubble. <laughs> I mean, I guess <laughs> females like can a have facial hair, too, but it, it does look like a man. The cleaning revealed even more masculine features, as I noticed, plus the Thomas Stewart signature covered with Gilbert Stewart's name. And today, the Chevalier is getting a second wave of respect and admiration. Lucy Peltz, the National Portrait Gallery's curator of 18th century portraits, said Deon was, quote, fascinating and inspirational.
2: You do really find that assessment in a lot of the more recent news articles about the Chevalier and about this portrait and the importance of the portrait in the gallery's collection. But I also find it fascinating that just as Mary Wollstonecraft had held up the Chevalier d'Éon as an inspiration and as a model for courageous womanhood, the Chevalier is today being held up as an inspirational LGBT figure. Um, things that, that seem kind of at odds with each other, but it's still the same person, you know, who's managing to inspire different groups for different reasons. And just a note here before we we wrap this one up, language was quite tricky for this show because it's, it's difficult to call Deon a transsexual or a transvestite because the circumstances behind his sudden adoption of a woman's identity are still unclear. You know, whether it was forced upon him or whether it was something that he negotiated for. And the same is true with gender, too. We decided to clearly go with the gender accepted by the public at the time. So uh, a male for the first half and a female. Figured if we tried to revise it, revise his life story, and he's a female from the beginning, y'all would know what we were talking about. Right. Um, plus, even if that vicontess was going with she, I mean, we
3: needed to, Right. <laughs> exactly, and one little side note here. Another additional side note: while he's praised for things like courage and intellect, Daniel was sometimes criticized for being unladylike. For example, hitching up his skirt to go upstairs—a critique that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be leveled at a man who was dressing as a woman. No,
2: I mean these are criticisms in his in his own day. And Art Daily describes the unique position of the chevalier in his time with this quote, which I, I thought summed it up pretty well. 18th century society found it much more acceptable to calibrate him as a masculine woman rather than a cross-dressing man. That kind of explains the portrait a little bit, described as a masculine, middle-aged woman. Um, but I I don't know. I just found this whole story really fascinating, clearly because of the secret and Madame de Pompadour and all of the spying, um, but just... It's so unique. There really is not anything else like this. I mean, I know we talked about, in our Amazon episode, we talked about a woman who disguised herself as a soldier, um, but the Chevalier stands alone.
3: He really does. It's an interesting story, and interesting that Madame de Pompadour keeps popping up.
2: I know. Maybe she's our new uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. I don't know.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that, but... She's definitely uh, an intriguing she figure. Can k- try to give him a run for his money. So
2: So since we talked a good deal about a painting today, we thought that maybe we'd have a little listener mail about paintings. And this one comes from Maria. She wrote to say, Hi, I just listened to your show on the La Lurie house. And one of you mentioned being particularly freaked out by the story of the painting whose eyes follow you across the room. I don't know. That might have been me, Jablina. I think it was. <laughs> she goes on to say, I'm sorry to say that you are going to spend most of your life freaked out if this is indeed the case. Oh no. <laughs> Since all portrait paintings, or indeed photographs, where the subject is looking straight ahead, are guilty of this behavior, it is an inherent quality of the 2D image. Go ahead, find any portrait and keep your eyes fixed on it while walking across the room. You will never lose eye contact.
3: I test it out with Picasso over there.
2: Yes, as we have mentioned before, we sit next to photos in the studio. Deblina has Tesla on her side. I have an elderly Picasso wearing his underwear, <laughs> 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 which some other fellow podcast host in the past has covered up at one point with a post-it note. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, I could try to see if Picasso's eyes follow me, although it's it's not going to matter because he's always to my right anyway, looking right at me, right? That's true. I
3: think my issue is more the haunted painting than the yeah. eyes. Well, I want to stand by my statement that I think the whispering of the <laughs> portrait is creepier. And if anyone wants to send an email and explain that <laughs> to me, I would appreciate it because I would like to. The acoustics of whispering when, that
2: comes from portraits. Yes. All right, we'll be expecting. I don't your think email. that's something
3: they all do. <laughs> Mine don't, anyway. <laughs>
2: Tesla's not whispering to you, Delina.
3: Well, he is, but that's because we have a connection. It's just
2: between you and Tesla. Right. All right. So, yes, if you want to let us know about how any of our fears regarding portraiture or whispers are true or unfounded, you can email us at historypodcasts at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Mistin History and we are on Facebook.
3: And if you would like to learn a little bit more about a clothing item referred to on this podcast, you can look up an article we have on how corsets work.
2: Yeah. And one last thing on the Chevalier. When I read that he supposedly bought corsets while living in London, you know, I had to email Holly. Who is the, one of the co-hosts of Pop Stuff and guested on this show a little while. And our
3: resident corset expert.
2: Yeah, I mean, we were talking about underwear, so any of y'all who listened to that podcast know it already, but I just had to check with her to make sure this was not a time when men were regularly wearing corsets, because that would sort of cancel out that the salacious detail of that fact, right? And what did she have to say? She had kind of a non-answer, admittedly. She said that it was not a time when a lot of men wore corsets, but it wouldn't have been totally strange to have something for your dress clothes, maybe. Um, So... I'm assuming that these were clearly not male corsets, though, or it wouldn't have been reported. I just had to throw it in there, though. A little note. People liked the underwear episode. People liked hearing about corsets. So, now you know. Chevalier corsets. You can go read more about corsets in general at HowStuffWorks.com.
3: For more on this and
0: thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. work.
4: Zumo Play.